This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Cleaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we are privileged to have Dr. Maylon Han on our show. We're going to be talking about effective COPD management to achieve value-based care goals. Dr. Han is a professor in chief of pulmonary and critical care medicine at the University of Michigan. She's an author, speaker, lung health advocate, consultant, and national volunteer spokesperson for the American Lung Association. She's also author of the new book, Breathing Lessons, A Doctor's Guide to Lung Health. I mean, there's so much work that Dr. Hahn is doing in lung health and as a practicing pulmonologist and a researcher. She's on the University of Michigan COPD Quality Improvement Committee. She's co-authored the U of M COPD Guidelines. She's really focused on defining phenotypes in COPD using imaging. She's the lead investigator for several NIH-sponsored COPD studies. She serves on several scientific advisory committees for both the COPD Foundation and the American Lung Association. I can go on and on and on, but, you know, Daniel, this is the first time we've ever really had a full episode of Race to Value really focused on a chronic condition, and I learned so much today after talking to Dr. Hahn about the importance of managing chronic obstructive pulmonary disease in value-based payment. Yeah, Eric, same here. It was such an enlightening conversation, you know, and the big takeaway for me is that there has to be an increased emphasis, a prioritization of COPD and, and caring for these patients. You know, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is the third leading cause of death. It's the fifth most costly chronic condition in the United States. It's a complex condition with numerous comorbidities, and it impacts low-resource and socioeconomic status patients the most. A huge economic burden, and value-based leaders, both in health organizations and across government, really have an important opportunity to increase emphasis and prioritization of this important topic. Well, let's hear now from Dr. Maylon Hahn as she joins us this week in the Race to Value. Dr. Hahn, welcome to the Race to Value this week. We're so happy to have you. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, you know, as we start our conversation today, I'd love to learn more about your calling to become a pulmonologist. As I understand, you grew up in a small town in Idaho, and you initially entered medical school with the goal of going back to Idaho to serve 
a small town community where the need for well-trained doctors is large. However, you came to learn that pulmonary medicine is where you can make your greatest impact as a physician by contributing to the greater societal good. And to this end, you spent the last 20 years taking care of thousands of patients with a huge variety of lung problems. And as a researcher, you focus on gathering and analyzing data to help the global community better understand who becomes sick, why they become sick, and what we can do about it. And along the way, I know you've been somewhat discouraged to see how little patients understand about how the lungs work and how little attention lung disease receives in comparison to some of the other chronic conditions. Um, can you discuss your journey in pulmonary medicine and how you've been able to make an impact as a lung health advocate? And in the 20 years that since you've started practice, have you noticed a change in how informed society is when it, when it comes to lung health, especially in this advent of vaping and COVID-19 and increased air pollution and urban communities and other you know, types of issues that we're seeing in the public arena? I'd love to get your perspective on that and learn more about your background. Yeah, as you mentioned, I grew up in Idaho. Idaho, along with several other Northwestern states, do not have a medical school. So I ended up at the University of Washington, which really specializes in training rural physicians. But my family, my mother's side of the family actually was originally from the Midwest. And so I thought it would be fun to come out here to do some of my training. And so I did my internal medicine residency at the University of Michigan. And during residency is when a lot of physicians try to figure out what they ultimately want to do or become. And there are so many subspecialties, cardiology, nephrology, et cetera, that all stem out of internal medicine. But the thing is, is I don't think very many people go into a particular specialty because they're so in love with a particular organ. It's really more about the kinds of things that you get to do sort of the rhythm of your day. It's the kinds of patients you get to care for and the people you work with. And so ultimately the, the kind of work and the kind of people I would get to work with both as physicians and as patients is really what ended up attracting me to pulmonary medicine. And, and like you said, I originally thought I would ultimately go back to a rural community, but I got really interested in doing research, and I, this is something I actually picked up after I, I finished, and I've had the privilege of getting to work on a lot of different types of research projects over the last, I guess, 15 years or so. During that time, what has really struck me in doing some of these more systematic investigations where we bring people in, and we look at their lungs, and we get breathing tests on them. What has struck me is how many people actually have some degree of lung damage and don't know it. So we don't do a great job at diagnosing lung disease in this country. So for instance, of the estimated 25 to 30 million individuals that have COPD, for instance, or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is one of the most common adult chronic lung diseases, only about half have a diagnosis. And then even of those that have a diagnosis, only a third have actually undergone appropriate diagnostic testing with spirometry. So we are really, really bad at diagnosing lung disease. And 
during the pandemic, that has become even more clear to me. I personally believe, and we can get more into it if you want, but I personally believe that undiagnosed lung disease and undiagnosed lung injury that maybe doesn't quite meet the threshold for being called a disease did contribute to the huge variety or variation that we saw in whether some patients got mild disease or whether patients got severe disease when they were infected with SARS-CoV-2. I have uh, also really struggled to try to understand why, despite the pandemic, lung health and understanding lung disease, it's not being discussed more. We're not getting more funding. We're not seeing a lot more traction. I really thought and hoped that some of these chronic problems would have gotten a little better with the pandemic, with suddenly a lot more people wanting to understand how their lungs work and what can happen with COVID. But I think that many people still see lung disease as someone else's problem, not their problem. And once someone has recovered or from COVID, people say, well, that's you know done and I don't have any issues. And for many patients, that's true, but we still have roughly 11 million Americans that are suffering from long haul COVID. And to be honest, what I'm coming to understand and coming to believe is that the threats to lung health are, are all of our problems. It belongs to all of us as physicians, as, as patients, as society. There are so many more threats to lung health now than there ever were with you know, air pollution from variety of causes being fueled by, by climate change, by the increasing number of, of hazardous chemicals we bring into our home on a daily basis. There was an article that was published just a few weeks ago that was talking about plastic microparticles being found in the lungs for the very first time. So I feel it's so, sometimes I feel like I'm yelling into the wind, but I'm, you know, I, I really felt like there was sort of this golden opportunity to help raise awareness with the pandemic. And with each passing day, I fear that, that people are starting not to listen. So it, it's definitely something that I think is hugely important to all of us and, and particularly from a managed care and a public health perspective. Dr. Hahn, thank you for starting off the conversation uh, with that great overview and insights. Uh, one of the things that you touched on is how health disparities are commonly seen with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease throughout the country. This is not unique as health disparities are found with other chronic diseases and throughout the continuum of care. But we've seen in research that the influence of health disparities and socioeconomic status on the etiology and outcomes of major non-communicable chronic diseases is more evident with COPD. And the environmental risk factors for developing COPD are more common in low-income and marginalized communities where tobacco smoking and indoor and outdoor air pollution are most prevalent. Since COPD is considered to be one of the most preventable major causes of death from a chronic disease in the world, effective interventions can definitely have a major impact in population health management especially in socioeconomically disadvantaged populations. And for our listeners out there who are leading these types of care management programs as, as part of value-based purchasing arrangements, they can see material impacts on readmission rates and hospitalizations if they focus on social determinants since there's such a strong association between income and poor outcomes in relation to COPD. Can you provide more perspective on the COPD burden faced within marginalized and minoritized communities? And what can be done at a community 
and a health system level to minimize the disparities that we're seeing. I know you asked me about COPD, but my mind kept racing back to COVID. And, you know, just in Michigan, for instance, while Detroit, for instance, which is primarily Black, um, makes up just a small fraction of our overall population, the death rate from COVID was really high in Detroit. And so trying to understand why some of our minority communities, trying to understand why some of our socioeconomically disadvantaged communities are more vulnerable to respiratory illness is a really tugging question. We certainly know that for certain things, certain, for instance, uh, smoking is more common in certain parts of the country. But we also know, for instance, our Black communities have been really targeted with predatory marketing uh, on the part of tobacco, menthol, cigarettes uh, in particular. So that's certainly part of it. When we started drilling down again on why certain communities were more susceptible to COVID, another issue that, that came up was that probably some of these patients weren't getting good care for their chronic diseases in the first place. And that probably contributed to risk. That's where diseases like COPD come in. So we know these patients are also perhaps more likely to have jobs where they might be exposed to dusty or dirty environment. And so we know the risk factors are higher. And then at the same time, you have to look at care access and, and care information. For instance, COPD is, as I mentioned, more common in rural communities. And that's where it is hardest to access specialists like pulmonologists. It is even harder to access things that we know can be really helpful for care, like pulmonary rehabilitation. I just actually saw some data come across my desk the other day, looking at that exact question and how far do rural patients have to drive, for instance, to get to the nearest pulmonary rehab center. And you would think perhaps that some of the virtual care that we've been able to deliver during the pandemic would help. And I think it has to a certain extent, but these are still the same patient populations that may not have internet <laughs> access, may not have a computer, may not even have a smart device that they can use. And so I, it's, it's certainly not, it, it helps some patients. It's certainly uh, not a perfect solution, but you're absolutely right. And when we look at sort of the, the COPD patient population at large, it's Rural America, it's in general, tends to be patients that are more socioeconomically disadvantaged. And this just puts them at greater risk, not just for developing disease, but also access to care. Well, Dr. Hahn, I appreciate your comments on COPD, but also the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, we think a lot about that within the context of this movement to value-based care, it, you know, it seems like we were at this inflection point where there's a elevated societal awareness around a lot of things, hopefully lung health included, but certainly health equity and social determinants of health, but also just the, the impact of costs and the, the burden that the healthcare industry has on the average consumer. And, you know, I, and I think that's carrying forward in the current inflationary period that we're in. But as a former ACO executive, I've had experience in focusing on how to avoid some of these hospitalizations and readmissions within chronic diseases. Uh, and, and it's an opportunity for the whole country to, to think about how do we deliver care that's patient-centered, but also eliminate some of the waste and 
you know, we have this aging population in the country and we have this high prevalence of chronic and behavioral health conditions that's ever rising. And, you know, half of adult Americans have at least one chronic condition and more than two thirds of Medicare patients have two or more chronic conditions. And, and then you have people with chronic and behavioral health conditions contributing to higher costs. And that's about 90% of the nation's $4 trillion in spending. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about what's called ambulatory care sensitive admissions. You know, in the ACO community, those are the, as you know, the admissions for which good outpatient care can potentially prevent the need for hospitalization or uh, for which early intervention can prevent a lot of the complications or even more severity of disease. And the chronic conditions that are most sensitive to ambulatory care are COPD, diabetes, congestive heart failure, coronary artery disease, asthma, hypertension. But, you know, unlike CHF and diabetes, it seems like a lot of these ACOs are not as purposeful in their targeting of COPD as an ambulatory care sensitive condition to tackle as part of their population health playbook. And I can attest, you know, having been in the operator's seat before, it just seems like it doesn't get the mind share and these groups that are taking financial risk. And it's a really massive unmet need um, with many COPD experience, uh, patients that continue to experience that fragmented and inconsistent care that drives poor clinical outcomes and high economic burden. So I just wanted to ask you, you know, with COPD, representing the third leading cause of death and the fifth most costly chronic disease in our country. What is it about that particular chronic condition that makes it less prone for population health management awareness? And, and what can we do to be more mindful about develop, deploying these interventions to address some of the ambulatory care sensitive admissions that we see with patients uh, dealing with COPD? Yeah, this is a really good question. I've actually spent a lot of time thinking about it. So I've been involved with the COPD quality improvement efforts at my own institution for many years now. And uh, although I, I recently stepped down as the co-chair just because I've been so busy with the division chief duties, but here's the thing. I have been approached by multiple groups, quality groups over the years, and also just for my knowledge of working with my own health system, everybody, you know, even working, for instance, with Youth News and World Report, where they want to develop their ranking systems. So here is the crux of the problem. The crux of the problem is, is that in order to develop metrics or interventions or measure outcomes, you actually have to be able to have something that you measure. And we do such a bad job collecting any information on COPD patients, it has been almost impossible to implement any quality improvement measures. So we have spent forever at the University of Michigan just trying to figure out how many of our patients have spirometry. Getting spirometry into you know, your electronic medical record had been a challenge. I think we're overcoming some of those hurdles, but every time you know you change your PFT system or you change the, the EMR, there's a huge pain point. We know that you know, even before the advent of the electronic medical record, only a third of patients were even getting PFTs. So that's just problem number one, trying to figure out even who the patients are. We have a transitions of care clinic at the University of Michigan. And for a while, at least before the pandemic, we were tracking people coming out of the hospital. We have roughly 10 to 15% of people coming out of the hospital after a COPD exacerbation who didn't even have COPD. 
So just figuring out who the patients are is a problem. No one has actually held anyone accountable for this for a really long time. So that's problem number one. But say you can actually say, okay, fine, we're going to let go of some of that, or you're going to say, okay, we're either going to force everyone to get spirometry or we're going to let go of it. And we're just going to go based on a diagnosis code. Then your next problem is, okay, well, what's adequate care? Well, if you look at the, the gold recommendations, the Global Obstructive Lung Disease Scientific Committee puts out, but management strategies, how about it, for CPD care. But if you look at the document, all of the treatment algorithms are based on symptoms and exacerbations. We have no good way in most EMRs of, of either documenting that or tracking it. So, I, you know, at the University of Michigan, we're an EPIC. I have spent the last probably five years trying to garner comb resources to get an epic build specific for tracking symptoms. So we finally have it, but it's taken forever. We finally have symptom tracking on about 75% of the patients just in the COPD clinic. Now, trying to figure out how to track exacerbations is even trickier because they can happen in a lot of different places. And that running count actually depends on stuff that may or may not have happened. So we finally kind of, I think, figured out how to do that. And now we're finally rolling that out, but this has taken me years. And why this is not part of a standic, either you know, Epic or Cerner build, I have no idea. But because of the inability, you know, whenever you, you, know, you think about quality managers, I feel like it's always carrots and sticks, right? You cannot apply carrots or sticks if you have no idea whether patients are being adequately cared for or not, and no systematic way of tracking it. So I guess the answer to your question, at least in my mind, is that it has not received a lot of attention because it's been very difficult to easily track. Although I suppose you could then say, well, then why hasn't someone put put the energy into it. I think in part it's because no other bigger organization has necessarily required it. So for instance, when CMS finally said, well, we, we're going to include COPD readmissions as a quality indicator, suddenly, you know, the hospital put some effort into trying to figure out how to track that. So I just think that enough appropriate pressure has been applied to actually get health systems and EMR companies to put the energy in to try to track some of these really important measures. And it sort of ends up becoming a vicious cycle because if you can't track something, you can't measure it, then you don't have characteristics. So then nobody says you have to do X, Y, or Z because we can't measure it. So then nobody puts any quality measures in place or says that you have to do something. So for things like diabetes and blood pressure, those are so easy to get A1Cs and blood pressure, and they were already there, it's very easy to implement. Well, you know, this person's blood pressure is not adequately managed, or this person's blood sugar is not adequately controlled. But because that effort has really not ever been put in for COPD, it just sort of continues to fly under the radar, which isn't good for anybody. Dr. Han, let's dive deeper into this conversation. I mean, you've told us essentially that COPD as a chronic disease is universally underdiagnosed. And Findings from several epidemiological investigations have shown that up to 75% of patients with COPD remain undiagnosed without substantial changes in the last two decades. As I understand, this is very likely related to scarcity of clinical suspicion of the disease or underuse of spirometry, which you've spoken about. 
but it may also be connected to like this inherited nihilism on the effectiveness of treatments in the early stages of COPD. And the extreme level of undiagnosed obstructive lung disease and the persistence to which it remains unsolved is really alarming as you've been talking about it. And although those with undiagnosed obstruction are more likely to have less severe disease and fewer comorbidities and to perceive their overall health as better than those with a clinical diagnosis of asthma or COPD. If they remain undiagnosed, they still have a higher mortality risk than that of the general population. Can you talk a little bit more about those findings and and about why we're seeing persistent gaps in COPD diagnosis? And and does earlier diagnosis even matter when it comes to effectiveness of interventions? And, And if so, what can organizations do that are pursuing a value-based care strategy to better identify these patients? So I think there's actually two related issues. I'm going to address them separately. The first is the patients who clearly have COPD but aren't getting picked up. And I agree with you. I think therapeutic nihilism is a huge piece of this. But you know, the problem, for instance, is that you, when you look at the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force that continues to recommend against spirometry as screening, they say, though, that their recommendations are based on lack of data, not negative data. And so they keep waiting for us to have some kind of study where it demonstrates that if you intervene early, you actually can control long-term outcomes. Well, we know that the medications we have can improve symptoms. We know they can improve exacerbation rates in patients with more severe disease. You know, we've got a couple studies suggesting appropriate therapy can actually improve survival. The data on milder patients for bending the curve with therapy, there have been fewer dedicated studies, but certainly when you look at subcuts of the data for patients focused on milder disease, it it would suggest that these patients do experience less lung function decline if, if adequately treated so in my mind, I think it, it does matter, but because that quote unquote definitive study hasn't been done, I think that's part of the reason why this therapeutic nihilism exists. I, I think it also does relate back though to the fact that, you know, no one's holding them accountable to having done that spirometry or et cetera or not. You know, the, but the flip argument I would say is that part of the reason that U.S. Preventive Service Task Force keeps saying we don't need to do this is because they say, well, you would all tell all patients to quit smoking. That does not matter whether they have COPD or not. But I'm not convinced that that doesn't mean a patient wouldn't do something differently if they had that information. There's some data suggests, for instance, if you explain spirometry to patients in terms of quote unquote lung age, that they're more likely to quit. But you know, what if you actually were to sit down with them? And have an even more expansive discussion, not just about tobacco, but other risk factors that, you know, occupational, other things in the home. So that study really hasn't, hasn't been done either. So in my mind, I would feel guilty or remiss if I had a patient that I had been caring for, say, as a family practice clinician for 20 years, and then they show up on my doorstep hypoxic, and I, you know, could have diagnosed them with COPD earlier and didn't, just from a sort of a patient knowledge and their ability to make their own decisions standpoint. I think the data is getting stronger, but I think a lot of the pharma companies know that, you know, clinicians like myself are pushing for more and more studies of of early intervention. Now, the other question you were getting at, which is related to that, is 
What about the patients with early disease that don't quite meet the definition of COPD based on spirometry? And that is a whole separate bucket that I have spent a lot of time thinking about and trying to research. And a lot of these patients do have other things going on. They've got small airways disease, they've got excess mucus production, they have exacerbations that are leading to hospitalizations. And because those study patients haven't really been studied, we don't actually know what therapies would work for that group of people. Uh, the funny thing is some of them probably are being lumped into the COPD group because a lot of doctors aren't getting spirometry on them anyway. But that is a very, very understudied group. They clearly have physiologic and pathologic abnormalities, and we don't actually even know what to do to try to help them. Even if they don't ever grow on to get COPD, I would argue that non-obstructive chronic bronchitis is a condition in and of itself that is, is worthy of, of diagnosis and treatment. And that's a whole separate discussion. To be honest, I, you know, I think part of the problem, as funny as it sounds, is that perfect has been a little bit the enemy of good for us as pulmonologists. So if you think, for instance, about blood pressure, we know the perfect blood pressure measurement, the patient would sit down for 15 minutes, you, you know, you put them in a calm, quiet room, you would get three measurements, you would average those measurements, and at the end, you would have the perfect blood pressure measurement. But do we ever do that? No, we don't. Instead, we rely on multiple measures being done at multiple times at, you know, at home, at CVS, in the doctor's office. We ask the patient to kind of write them all down, and then we try to get a, a kind of a snapshot using all of those sort of imperfect measurements. With spirometry, we have very, very good quality data, but we've also held spirometry to a much higher standard. It has to be incredibly reproducible, et cetera, et cetera. And I think some of the perfection that we have put on it has reduced its use in clinical practice. And sometimes I wonder if we'd be better off with some version of imperfect spirometry or even just peak flow that would be used as a screen in primary care offices, and then they can send them off to get the perfect test in the lab. But, you know, these are really great questions, important questions. And ultimately, these undiagnosed patients, these patients with mild disease, still have a lot of exacerbations. They still, as you pointed out, have excess mortality. And from a sort of a pure, a pure economics standpoint, would be remiss to ignore. Well, the other thing we can't ignore is the healthcare costs associated with COPD. And in 2021, there was $32 billion in cost that was associated with excessive rates of rehospitalizations and ED visits, complex and inefficient clinical pathways during transitions of care. And also just the in intensive resource burden on clinical and administrative staff. And the average cost per COPD patient readmission in the U.S., it falls anywhere between $9,000 to $12,000. And these readmissions occur, and, you know, as we've talked about, because of an exacerbation that happens often, you know, the patient coming through the ED. And, you know, these are things that are completely sensitive to ambulatory care, you know, as we talked about in, in one of the earlier questions. And if you look at a patient that has a severe exacerbation and they have to be intubated in the ICU, then we're talking about $45,000 in cost or more. So I wanted to, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, where chronic care management can come in for these patients. I mean, yeah, as we know, you know, in, in the current kind of fee-for-service model, you've got really fragmented, reactive, insufficient, and 
unfortunately costly care delivery and in a value-based model of care that deploys effective chronic care management for high-risk COPD patients, there, there is an opportunity for cost savings because you're really focusing on, on some of the, the dysfunction that results from some of those misaligned economic incentives. And, you know, these programs can focus on patient engagement and education, long-term self-management, establishing uh, community and post-acute care partnerships, improving interprofessional team collaboration. And there's numerous research studies out there that confirm the effectiveness of CCM or chronic care management. There was a recent one that was published in the Journal of the COPD Foundation, and they found that COPD care management can reduce COPD-related readmissions and, and save hospitals money. And I wanted to ask you, Dr. Hahn, if you could talk about you know, how these uh, chronic care management programs can work to more effectively manage COPD patients. And in the primary care setting, what can lay health workers or community health workers do in terms of being deployed effectively to, to manage the COPD burden in the practice without having physician-based interventions and having to be the predominant approach? Is there a way to, to kind of leverage uh, other resources on that interdisciplinary care team to, to get better outcomes with, with COPD patients? So I think, you know, the first thing is just to get the diagnosis right, which means all the patients have to have confirmatory spirometry. I, like I said, we have this transitions clinic right after patients are hospitalized. When we looked at these patients that didn't have COPD, you would just be stunned if I told you all the different diagnoses we've come up with, pulmonary fibrosis or somebody even with a paralyzed diaphragm. So just all sorts of other diagnoses. So that's, I think, the first thing. And then one of the new, well, newer recommendations that Gold has made around management has to do with this reevaluation cycle, which I think was a little bit more inherent to asthma management and a little bit of a newer concept. But, you know, you've got to figure out if patients are on the right medication. And so that's where you absolutely have to measure symptoms. You've got to measure exacerbation frequency. If you don't have a good way of, of doing that, it's, it's got to be in the notes somewhere. It's got to be, you know, somewhere where someone can track it or at least make sure that physicians are recording it in the notes. And each subsequent visit, you have to determine whether the therapy is adequate. And I think we're getting better at kind of understanding, you know, which patients benefit from which medications. So extremely generally speaking, you know, bronchodilators or dual bronchodilator therapy is good for helping in particular patients with significant dyspnea and um, patients who are having frequent exacerbations, particularly if their eosinophil levels are higher or where the inhaled steroids probably should be added. So you assess symptoms, you assess exacerbation frequency, then you assess the meds and you determine if the meds are adequate. If the patient is, is still failing, then, then there are other things you, know, you can do. I, I'm making sure patients are using their inhalers correctly is a huge piece of education that needs to be reassessed. And unfortunately, it's getting more difficult with virtual care and the pandemic, but that's certainly something that ancillary staff in the, in the clinic can help with. And, you know, we are also using things like the in-check dial to try to make sure that the patient, you know, the flow rates that patients are generating are appropriate for the device. So that's one key thing. To the extent that we can, we really do try, it's, it's difficult and it's becoming even more difficult with virtual care, but to try to assess all the needs of the patient. So for instance, I saw a patient once that had been in the hospital three times and I was seeing him after his third discharge. 
And I said to him, well, it looks like you're on medications A, B, and C. You know, it's kind of frustrating. You've been hospitalized three times now. And so are you taking these medications? And, and he says to me, oh, no, I can't afford any of them. <laughs> any of them. So we have a social worker that, you know, works with us to make sure. I'm also really lucky. I also have a respiratory therapist that I can call on if needed, which can be incredibly helpful for a lot of various things, particularly for our, our sicker patients. We're seeing different types of oxygen equipment as well as um, sometimes even, you know, assisted ventilator devices. So I think there's all sorts of different kinds of support that you can have in kind of a multidisciplinary approach. And then, of course, there's pulmonary rehabilitation, which has always been the cornerstone of COPD management. It's been very difficult to offer in some places during the pandemic. As we mentioned, unfortunately, it's always been difficult for some of our patients because of where they live. Unfortunately, we don't really have a good handle on virtual rehab yet. The problem is there is no standard. And so the data is really all over the place. You know, what elements they provide, how they provide it, when they provide it is also varied that it's just made the efficacy of virtual rehab really, really difficult. I think we'll get there, but we need better standards on, on what the elements are and how they should be delivered. So making sure you've got the right assessments, the spirometry, the symptoms, the exacerbation, you know, reviewing your goals of care with the patient, assessing technique, and utilizing the, the ancillary staff, and then incorporating pulmonary rehab really, for me, are the pillars of chronic disease management for COPD. Dr. Hahn, I appreciate you diving into some of the complexities and challenges that we have with, with telehealth. Often we think of it as kind of a silver bullet solution, and it's definitely not that. There are obviously some some concerns and challenges with uh, using it effectively for, for all patients and, and diseases. But you know, we, we've seen as part of the COVID pandemic improvements in technology and changes in care delivery, we've seen remote patient monitoring as having an expanded role because of that. And, and consequently, COPD has been shown to be a promising disease for the utilization of RPM. Until recently, home monitoring of cardiorespiratory parameters was limited due to technical limitations, patient burden, and cost. For RPM utilization to be successful, monitored physiological variables need to be predictive of future clinical deterioration and rapid home-based therapies must exist. And with the advent of these tools and techniques becoming more accessible, a faster regimen of home-based therapies can be implemented during early stages of decline. Can you share your perspective on the effectiveness of RPM with COPD patients and and how has RPM proven to be a critical advantage in your practice during the COVID-19 pandemic, especially for treating at-risk and elderly patients? And finally, now that we're reaching an endemic phase, do you think that remote patient monitoring will remain widely deployed as a tool to improve care in ambulatory COPD patients? You know, there's all sorts of things you could be talking about there, from a patient just monitoring their own pulse oximeter at home to we, have, we now have smart inhalers, for instance, to uh, the multitude of companies that have come out with wearables for CBD to the home spirometry companies. So there are quite a few options to other companies, for instance, that now have an app, for instance, that they want the patients to log on to on a daily basis 
to kind of monitor their symptoms. And then if, you know, they hit a certain threshold and alert goes off. To be honest with you, I as a clinician, but also as a division chief, thinking about care and the future of care, it, right now it feels very overwhelming from a healthcare system perspective. There's almost too much. And trying to figure out which of these are important, which matter for patients, I feel like I get contacted on an almost daily basis from some different company that has some new remote monitoring solution for patients with COPD. And very few of them have actually have hard data at this point to show that it necessarily do, doing X, Y, or Z definitely will, will be worth the investment. And then, and then the second challenge, even though to a certain extent, I thought it might be kind of fun or interesting to try to deploy some of these, you know, it's unclear who's going to pay for them either. I would be very hard pressed to get the University of Michigan to pay for anything extra right now. And so during the pandemic, for instance, the CF Foundation paid for spirometers, I think remote spirometry for the majority of their patients. We decided that some patients, it was so crucial we get spirometry on them that we would pay for it. That included our post-transplant patients, actually. But we never really did enact any kind of systematic monitoring. So I actually would be curious for your perspective, because at least at the University of Michigan, we're not doing a lot of it. I know there's just so much out there, but to be honest, I think as a clinician, I don't know what to do with all that data. There's so many ways that that data could get fed back to me. You know, there is some interesting data that I actually recently saw that came out of my own health system that was fed back to me. And the number of messages that physicians now receive through the electronic portal has like tripled during the pandemic. So physicians right now are just absolutely crushed. We are dying under the weight of information just from all the stuff that's now in the electronic medical record. And there's the sheer number of messages that are hitting us on a daily basis I don't mean to, to sound cynical. I think that there probably are some solutions that would make tons of sense for patients, but I have yet to see any data on remote monitoring solutions that would make me feel compelled to implement them yet at this point. But, but I could be a total outlier on that. Well, Dr. Hahn, I think you make a great point. And, you know, the big takeaway for me is like, you know, let's not boil the ocean here. There's plenty that we can do and focus on those pillars you mentioned earlier in supporting these patients, diagnosing appropriately. The other thing we have to focus on is uh, hospital readmissions for those patients as part of those chronic care management programs. And you referenced earlier in your discussion, the CMS hospital readmissions reduction program or the HRRP. And that was a program that came out out of the ACA that was passed in 2010. And when, when that program was launched in 2012, it, it initially targeted heart failure, pneumonia, and acute myocardial infarction. And then COPD was added to the list of conditions in 2013. And th that's at a time when, you know, one in five patients are readmitted within 30 days following an index admission for a COPD exacerbation. And since those financial penalties were imposed on readmissions for COPD in that program, there really hasn't been much in terms of 
overall reduction in COPD related hospital readmissions. You know, there was a research study published last year in the annals of the American Thoracic Society, and investigators concluded that the HRRP penalty was ineffective for COPD with COPD hospital readmissions. They did increase at the earlier time at a point in 2012, but that's when penalties had been announced for other conditions outside of COPD, and there was just kind of a maybe a little bit of a, a lift there. But overall, there hasn't been much to move the needle. And there's another interesting finding, and I hear this all the time in the critique of this program, but, you know, with the hospital readmission penalties, there's concerns about, you know, hospitals that are already at a certain threshold will find it more beneficial to just pay the penalty instead of exerting some of the costly efforts that are really required to reduce readmissions. So I just wanted to get your take on the hospital readmissions reduction program as an opportunity to improve care and cost savings for patients with COPD. What has been your experience with that? And, you know, what can our listeners learn in terms of avoiding those penalties or maybe using it as a catalyst to to really improve outcomes in their COPD population? So I think some health systems have been really successful at, at using sort of that penalty to get resources from the hospital to get more comprehensive, both in and outpatient as well as transition programs put in place. And so I think it for a sub-segment of health systems, it ended up being really helpful and important. But I think it just really varies from health system to health system. So in mine, it did get us some initial resources to try to start tracking and develop some programs. The funny thing is by the time we actually kind of went back and said, we need some more resources, we've kind of analyzed the data and this is what we think we need. They said, well, you know what? It's actually other health conditions that are driving it right now. So we don't care as much I, that's why I say it's, I think it's a little bit health system dependent as to how much of a, a factor COPD is in driving any one health system's numbers. But I think if it is a driver, then, then some people definitely have been able to use it to garner resources. To be honest, I think I, there definitely are things you can do to improve care and reduce admissions for sure. But having said that, when you look at the data and you look at why patients are readmitted, Roughly one-third are readmitted for COPD, one-third are readmitted for a comorbidity, and one-third are readmitted for some type of psychosocial issue. So if you focus on just the COPD-specific stuff, you'll get a third of the readmissions. So I think that's why it, it is so challenging. And despite the fact that health, that you know health systems are now paying, I think, a bit more attention, that we haven't seen the needle move a lot because it, it can be really, really difficult to get that get that needle to move. You, I, 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 I'm just listening to myself here and I'm fearing I'm, I'm coming off as a completely, completely nihilist when it comes to, to COPD interventions. And that's, that's not true. I think there's a lot we can do to better coordinate care on the inpatient side and, and transitions of care. But I think our health systems have become so complex and our patients are so complex that the more holistic these approaches, I think better outcomes we'll, we'll see with respect to the readmissions issue specifically. I really appreciate that perspective. The, the holistic approach is really meaningful to me. And, and I want to shift gears a little bit, but stay on the, keep that holistic uh, mindset and shift us to talking about climate change and lung disease. And climate change and health conditions have been shown to be inextricably linked 
worsening air pollution and extreme heat increase the risk of non-communicable diseases such as respiratory and cardiovascular disease. And it's kind of a paradox when you think that the health systems that are strong contributors to greenhouse gases, which are furthering the climate change challenges. In 2018, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change estimated that to avoid catastrophic changes to our climate, we need to cut our greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2030 and get to net zero emissions by 2050. And unless we cut the carbon footprint of the healthcare sector, that won't happen. Symptoms are projected to triple between now and 2050, which will result in a drastic impact on people's lung health. As one of the leading lung health advocates in the country, are you concerned about climate change? And if so, what are your thoughts on the responsibility of the health sector to minimize its role as a contributor to greenhouse gases? So, yes, I, I am concerned. You know, pollution and climate change are linked as the climate becomes hotter. We're seeing, you know, increased particulate matter from wildfires, more and more inversions. We're seeing, you know, particularly urban centers where there's lots of traffic having worse and worse air quality. And there's all sorts of data to suggest that this impacts lung health. We know that, for instance, children growing up in a, a, if their elementary school is near a freeway will have more lung disease, more frequent asthma exacerbations, worse lung function that then improves if the, they you know, transition out of that environment. There was actually this super interesting study that came out during the pandemic that suggested that just the wildfires that were going on in, in the American West were associated with, I think, roughly 20,000 excess cases of COVID-19 and 750 deaths. I don't think people realize that the air pollution can cause lung injury and that that lung injury makes you more susceptible to other types of lung damage. Even if, you know, most of those people who are exposed to those wildfires probably had no clue, no clue that anything had happened to their lungs. But this again, goes back to my point about how pre-existing lung injury and lung damage, I think contributed to some of the variations we saw with the severity of, of COVID-19 infection. But speaking to your second Point, which was what is the responsibility of the health system to curb greenhouse gases? I think it's it's everyone's responsibility. And that's where I, you know, I guess I haven't crunched the numbers, but I have to believe that virtual care and things like that, you know, may help decreasing travel to the to the healthcare system. Another place where fingers get pointed all the time in pulmonary disease is actually some of the pr propellants that are in inhalers and the the, the potential uh, damaging those could have effects that those could have on the environment. And I think most of the pharmaceutical companies realize that and are committed to getting products switched over to cleaner devices uh, as, as quickly as they can. It's definitely something that, uh, you know, that the University of, of Michigan is weighing heavily and even thinking about things like carbon offsets for when we travel to meetings. <laughs> there's definitely, it's, there's definitely a balance, but I think for, for patients, my biggest advice there would be to think about both indoor exposures as well as outdoor exposures in terms of, you know, air pollution. You can monitor outdoor air pollution. There's a website, airnow.gov. You know, you have a choice on which day you're going to do your yard work or exercise, maybe not on the high high air pollution day. Inside the home, there's actually all, all sorts of things, which we could probably do an entire separate segment on. Uh, but I think it's it, it ultimately boils down to just being really mindful of your environment and thinking about what you're breathing. And, you know, the funny thing is before the pandemic, I didn't always think about using a mask, for instance, when I 
say cleaned out my garage, but now I do because I've got N95s all over the place. So, but you know, if I think I'm going to be kicking up something that could be potentially harmful, I'll go ahead and 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 throw in a mask. It's ultimately everyone's responsibility. We each have personal responsibility to keeping air clean and to, to monitoring our own environment. But absolutely, as a healthcare system, we also bear responsibility for trying to slow climate change as, as much as we can, because it ultimately will have huge negative health impacts on our patients. Well said, Dr. Hahn. And, you know, as we wrap up our interview today, there's one more thing I wanted to ask you about, and that's the future of lung health in our country in the post-pandemic era. You know, as we talked about, the COVID-19 pandemic has raised the profile of lung disease as well as lung health. And the importance of understanding how to protect and preserve lung function has never been fully appreciated until this moment. That can be easily illustrated by seeing COPD and lower respiratory infections as the leading cause of death globally. However, (laughs) they're 13th and 17th respectively when it comes to grant funding for research and safeguarding lung health is crucial to our overall health and survival. And I'd love to hear your parting thoughts on the future. You know, where do we go from here? Do you see that we might get renewed focus and, and, and that'll translate into research investment and better understanding lung disease and developing treatments so that we're better prepared for the future? And we actually see that parity between the leading causes of death and the actual, you know, funding that goes into trying to ameliorate that? Sure. Well, I think, you know, I think, as you know, I recently wrote a, a book, Breathing Lessons, that where I talk about a lot of the stuff, not just how the lungs work, but also, you know, how you can protect yourself. But the interesting thing is I also spent the entire last chapter trying to dig into this problem of how did we get here? How did we get to a place where lung disease actually was the number one cause of death? in the United States last year, the number one cause of death. How did we get to this place? And the reasons are really multifactorial. You know, in the book, I, I go back and I look at things like the history of cardiovascular medicine and why taking, you know, blood pressure really caught on, why physicians were much more slow to adopt spirometry, why funding levels have really lagged for pulmonary disease and unfortunately, I think because of it, I think what many people don't realize even before the pandemic is, you know, for severe forms of lung injury, which we call ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome, when we have patients on ventilators in the ICU, we never had good treatments even before the pandemic, largely, I would say, due to lack of investment into understanding or protecting lung health. The other thing is that patients don't come into my office asking me about how they can help keep their lungs healthy. We don't ever even talk about lung health. You know, we focus in on diagnoses. And the problem is is that unlike diabetes, where we're now doctors are monitoring A1Cs very closely, and they'll know usually well before you actually get diabetes, right? We aren't monitoring anything very closely. And to be honest, by the time someone has abnormality on pulmonary function testing, they've probably already lost quite a bit of lung function. So we're just, you know, unfortunately, there's just so many places where we've ignored lung health, where we haven't invested, where we don't have, you know, really those public health measures in place to help screen for disease, to educate people about disease. And and I think that kind of is all contributes to 
why lung disease was the number one cause of death in the United States last year, why we really were not prepared for the pandemic. And unless we, as a society, honestly, from the government all the way down, unless we make lung health more of a national priority, I really do not think we will be in any better shape for the next respiratory pandemic. I, I really don't. And uh, I, I hate to be so so pessimistic about it, but unfortunately, every appropriations bill I've seen, every pandemic preparedness bill that I have seen, unfortunately, still fails to address issues around how do we support failing lungs? How do we help lungs regenerate? How do we help lungs heal? So until, you know, I'm still kind of, you know, I've been working with a lot of groups on trying to figure out how we can better prioritize this from the top down. But I would say, you know, certainly if we've got CEOs of health systems or people thinking about how, you know, how and what they should be doing to implement programs for their own health populations that they serve, I think we absolutely have to start um, thinking, you know, the funny thing is when this, and I don't mean to fully digress here, but the gentleman that invented the spirometer, he was an actuary, an insurance actuary. He knew that measuring lung function was actually a predictor of survival. And he knew that a long time ago. And I feel like somehow that in, that information has has gotten lost. Lung health definitely is becoming increasingly clear that lung health absolutely is a pillar when we think about overall health. And it, it's got to be a part of wellness management and, and creating wellness in, in patients and populations that we serve. Well, Dr. Hahn, thank you for joining us this week in the podcast. For our listeners out there that want to know more about your work and, and read your new book, Breathing Lessons, A Doctor's Guide to Lung Health, uh, where can they find out more about you and, and your thought leadership? Sure. I, I think I'm on every social media platform there is, but I also have my own website, drmelanhan.com. And then, uh, which has, there is a whole page there on the book, uh, but you can also get the book at every major book uh, retailer. You you pick your favorite, it, it, it should be there. So uh, it was a, a real uh, pleasure speaking with uh, both of you today, uh, Eric and Dan. Thanks so much, Dr. Hahn. Thank you so much. 